everybody. Welcome to the Two Trees Podcast. We're here to talk about angels and demons, ghosts, the pagan gods, and the weird corners of the Bible. We're talking about the beliefs of the ancient world, the way they talked about the supernatural world, all to help you understand the people of the Bible and to be able to engage on a deeper level with the text of Scripture. But most important of all, we're here to show you Jesus as Deuteronomy 10.17 describes him. The Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, mighty and awesome. You're a good reader, Rose. Good job. Well, you're a good typer, John. Well oh, done. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. This is actually kind of a big deal for us because this is actually our one-year anniversary of releasing podcasts. Who would have thought we would make it a whole year? Didn't even know you a year ago, Rose, and so we're excited to have you here. I also have a new guest with me, Kai Rell. Say hello to the people. Hello. You got to put your face by the microphone, Ah. or else no one's going to hear you. Can you hear me now? Hello. I do. Yeah, good job. We can hear you. So Kyrell is Rose's son-in-law, and we all went out to dinner, had an awesome time, lots of chicken wings and pizza, and what did you have? I had potato skins and salad because I'm fun. Yeah, but, nothing says fun like salad. But your nice wife offered me some of your pizza, and I ate it, and it was delicious. Sounds boring, because you ate the worst part of the potato. Yeah, there's way better <laughs> parts of the potato than the skin of the potato. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we're here today. We're looking at a story, and this one's a, it's a weird one. It has giants. It's got magicians, prophets, talking animals, angels, battles, curses. It's, it's kind of loaded with fun stuff. It sounds like Narnia. I think that's why I just, the story is jumping off the page at me. Well, it's kind say. of an un-Narnia. There's not much fun in this particular passage. It's a, more of a judgmenty thing. But if you want to think of it as Narnia, that's, that's awesome. But if you're out there, my friends, and you've never left us a review, it would help us a ton if you would just take a minute, pause the podcast, and go to the podcatcher of your choice and leave us a review. That helps get our podcast out there. It lets people know that we're worth listening to and that it's endorsed by someone as awesome as you are. Uh, if uh, you don't want to, you know, fill out a review, that's cool. Just share us with a friend of yours. That's the best way to grow the podcast is to partner with us and just share this with your buddies. Let them know what it is that you're listening to and, and that will move us places. Awkward silence. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, this story is uh, is often, sadly, it's it's treated as a, a side story. It's shrugged off as unimportant by many Bible readers, uh, but it takes up multiple chapters of the Torah. It's not a fast story. It's one that actually is given a lot of time. And I, I think it's ignored by people or marginalized by people because it's so strange. And because uh, the plot really relies on understanding the ancient cultures to connect the dots between the characters and what's going on. But hopefully, after this episode, you'll have a better understanding of my man, the prophet Balaam, and the book of Numbers. So as Israel was moving north and west out of the wilderness, the kingdoms of Canaan began to mobilize to fight them. They were looking for allies and tools to repel them. And the area of the Transjordan was dominated by the Amorites, who were from old Babylon. They were a people who were steeped in magic, the occult. They worshipped the powers of darkness. And to be honest, I had to ask John to show me on a map what the area of the Transjordan was. And he did a great job. Yeah, it's the area uh, across the Jordan. So as you move west, or rather as you move east from Jerusalem, you're going to go across the River Jordan. And that area is the Transjordan. And during the time of the, uh, the exile of the, well, not exile, but of the exodus, as the people are wandering in the wilderness... Canaan is kind of a, a no man's land. It's kind of a wild west. There are lots of little kingdoms and 
princes and warlords that have taken power and are uh, exercising dominion over little local uh, chiefdoms and princes and kingdoms and that kind of a thing. And, and they based themselves off of the larger empires. Some of them looked a lot like Egypt. Others looked a lot like the kingdoms of the north, uh, the Hittites or the Amorites. Uh, the Amorites, by the way, are, are sometimes called the old Babylonians. King, You remember Hammurabi, like Hammurabi's code? Oh, yeah, sure. He's an Amorite. And uh, there's, there's a lot of really weird stuff about the Amorites. They, they believed in semi-divine kings like Gilgamesh, who was three-fourths god and one-fourth human. And uh, the, the children of the gods are the rulers. And so they, they, they literally thought this was a real thing. And as we encounter them in the story of the Bible, we find out, oh, these guys actually seem to have had something to this story. And it connects back to the story of the Great Flood. Before the flood, there are characters called the sons of God, the heavenly host, and they took wives from among the daughters of Adam, uh, and their children were giants, uh, Nephilim or Raphaim. These are evil creatures wiped out by the flood, but Genesis tells us that this event didn't just happen before the flood, that it was repeated on a smaller scale after the flood as well. And I'll show you this. Rose, would you take a look at Genesis 6, uh, verse 4? Sure. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So the book of Genesis is dealing with those Amorite myths, with the stories of the uh, Babylonian people. And it, it doesn't say, hey, your stories are all made up. Instead, it says what you're remembering in mythology is something that seems to have really happened that there was a time when the angels, when God's uh, heavenly host, rebelled against God. The book of Jude says they left their place of authority, and they came down to the earth, and they bore children. So not to put you on the spot, but mm -hmm. um, you say the Amorites, that like Hammurabi would have been one of the Amorites, mm -hmm. and they believed in semi-divine kings, which is maybe an echo from the past of the whole Nephilim. What would have been the time difference or the time stamp between the Nephilim uh, in Genesis 6-4 and somebody like Hammurabi? Oh, that we don't know because it depends on how much time takes place. And if you're trying to use biblical genealogies uh, to trace time, you're, you're going to end up in Weirdville. It, it doesn't pan <laughs> really? out very well. Really? I thought well. that's what we were basically, you know, well, we yeah, are it, in Weirdville. You know, having a, a podcast just about tracing <laughs> genealogies isn't, isn't always something I can sell. Uh, to, mm. for there are other people who do that really well, uh, but I'm not really sure of the time frame. But it hadn't been forgotten by people, and pretty much all cultures across the world have stories of uh, demigods of, of humans who are part divine and part human culture heroes. And the Book of Genesis gives a nod to that. It says these were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. But it says that there were Nephilim, and that's what it calls them, before the flood, during the days of Noah. And also afterward, when the daughters of men uh, and the sons of God bore children. And so there seems to have been a large-scale revolt against God before the flood. And those creatures, those uh, fallen sons of God are chained up. And there seems to have been a much smaller uh, instance of this happening after the flood. Because by the time that Israel gets to the promised land, there are giants there. There's guys like Og, there's the Anakim, there's the Zamzumim, there's the Emim. There's this whole culture of giant-like peoples who are tracing their ancestry back to uh, the occult. 
to the worship of the dark. And you're going to see that clearest in the book of Numbers. If you've never read the book of Numbers, you're missing a huge, awesome book that is way cooler than just numbers. To me, it sounds like math, and it kind of gives off a, hey, don't read me vibe. But it's filled with some really great stories. So in Numbers 13, 33, Kyrell, do you mind reading that? Sure. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. I can never say. That's all right. Nephilim. He's from Missouri, right? So yeah. he's Nephilim is the word. I read it how it sounds. <laughs> there we go. Nephilim. I like it. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. Yeah, saying, that, hey, we went and spied out the land, and you're never going to guess who's in there. there. There are giants in there. The sons of Anak, the Nephilim are there. There are giants living in Canaan. Uh, one of these giants is a guy called Og of Bashan, and Bashan is a real bad place. I'm sorry. Giant King Og of Bashan just sounds, sounds like, like a, a bad idea. Yeah, right? it sounds like a bad idea. Yeah, if ever I was going to, if I had a giant and I could name him, I would name him Og. I think that seems like a very good giant name. Uh, but uh, we, we're not going to get into Og a whole lot here, other than just to say that he is a giant. And he challenges the children of Israel. There's another king called Sihon. And these guys are Amorites. They are setting themselves up in the style of old Babylon. And they're presenting themselves as Nephilim-type leaders. And the Bible seems to indicate that's exactly what they were, that he was a giant, that these were people whose religion was to worship the, the darkness. These are huge, powerful peoples. And honestly, they should have won. They had the power of the darkness on their side, but none of their power, none of their might, none of their strategies were able to stop God and the Israelites from moving into the territory. Og is defeated. Sion is defeated. And that sends the rest of Canaan into a panic. If those guys weren't capable of stopping the Israelites, we are in real trouble and so almost at, the, at, at just one fell swoop, Israel finds itself the masters of nearly the whole west side, or rather the eastern side of the Jordan. But not all of the enemies have been defeated. There are other groups of people, other clans, other tribes like the Midianites and the Moabites, and these guys are still around and they still have power. And these would have been, these, the Midianites and the Moabites would have been further south Mm-hmm. Below, kind of like below the Dead Sea, or well, to the east side of the Dead Sea and south, and, whereas Og and Bashan would have been up in the north. So yeah. this is a really wide swath that yeah, they're it's trying the to whole take down. Eastern side here, Israel is just kind of moving from place to place, and and really this uh, battle is geared towards the the giant peoples, towards the people whose alliances are aligned with with these powers, with the darkness. So when Israel came in, they must have had like an Israel Pony Express. They sent out like an emergency message north. Yeah, said, hey, watch out, boys, we're coming. No, I think everyone was talking about this. When Egypt was messed up like it was in the plagues, everyone took notice of that because for large periods of time egypt express the egyptian express yeah the the camel express maybe uh yeah for a big part of time canaan was ruled by the egyptians a lot of these kings were set up by the egyptians and so when egypt's army is defeated everyone took notice of this there's this massive unstoppable people whose god is physically there 
and miracles are happening and word has spread that they're coming. And they've been coming for a very long time. They've been out in the wilderness, they've been wandering, but all of a sudden this people seem to have purpose and they begin to move west. And as they move west, people begin to lose their minds. They uh, try to act peaceful. They talk to their distant relatives, the Midianites and the Moabites. And these are really broad names that encompass lots of people. Uh, there wasn't like a country called the Moabites or a country called the Midianites. There, these were ethnic groups. And some of these guys were far away and some were real close at hand. Uh, and so this is talking about specific peoples and powers. But if Og and Sihon couldn't repel Israel, what hope did Midian and Moab have? They were going to need help. And so they began to look around for someone, a champion, to come and to help them. And their uh, conversation seemed to have sought out a very famous person of the ancient world named Balaam. Now, to us, Balaam is kind of a comical character, uh, famous for having a conversation with a donkey. Uh, but Balaam in the ancient world was a, a pagan sorcerer. He's famous for curses. He's uh, kind of a Merlin-type character, and he's from the Amorites' uh, home back up in Mesopotamia. Do you want to try to explain for a minute what you mean by a Merlin character? Yeah, he's a person who is dabbling with the spiritual powers. He isn't just a priest. He's someone who's talking to spirits. He's kind of like a priest or um, somebody who is uh, into the occult. And sometimes it seems that he has dealings with good powers, and sometimes he has conversations with evil powers. There's, there's a tremendous variety of the stories about Balaam. But he was famous enough that the Moabites and the Midianites have heard of this guy. Well, he's all the way over in Mesopotamia. Yeah, that way is, up where the Amorites yeah. came from. This is the culture that they looked to as their their home. So this is a wizard, uh, a prophet, uh, someone with power to contact the supernatural powers directly. If the sons of the gods couldn't stop the Israelites, we need someone who can talk directly to the gods. And so let's take a look at Deuteronomy 23 and verse 4. Because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. So this is describing why Israel is going to go to war with the Midianites and the Moabites. And it says, listen, these guys should have received you as brothers. These are descendants of Abraham. These aren't giant clans. These are people who should have welcomed you. And instead of welcoming you as brothers, they sided with the giants. They side with the Nephilim. And they hire a wizard to come in to try to curse you. And so, yeah, God says, these are not friends of yours. These are enemies. And they've reached all the way up into Mesopotamia to look for someone to come and to help them. Do you think that the Moabites and the Midianites were recognizing this as more of a spiritual warfare? Is that what's going on here? Because Israelites yeah. took down Og. Mm -hmm. And physically, that probably shouldn't have been a yeah, reality. I don't think that ancient peoples really made a big distinction between physical and supernatural okay. the way that we do. They had priests on the battlefields. They didn't go fight if the omens were bad. Uh, it, it was very much more of a blended world. And so when they go looking for, uh, for Balaam to come down, they're hiring a weapon. That's just kind of standard procedure. Like we need bigger 
Guns. Bigger guns. Yeah, right. we yeah. need somebody who can come in. This is a serious attack against us. We need to get someone who has a track record of success. We need to get somebody who's famous even among all of the Amorites, not just a local priest or wizard, uh, but someone who really knows what's... And I'm not using wizard like Gandalf or that kind of a thing, but somebody whose uh, trade is talking to the supernatural mm-hmm. powers and getting them to do what you want them to do. So the phrase there for Mesopotamia is Aram Naharem, and it's the region between the upper Euphrates and the Haber rivers. You'll find this a bunch of times, Genesis 24, Deuteronomy 23, Judges 3, 1 Chronicles 19, Psalm 60, a bunch of places, and it's talking about the place that we know as Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers. And when you're listening to this story, Balaam kind of sounds like a made-up guy. Obviously, you know, maybe this was something that uh, the Bible just needed a weird character, someone that they could throw out there as, um, as a really bad person, but you wouldn't expect to actually be a real person. Uh, and so it's surprising to me to find that Balaam is one of the only people in the Torah for whom we have actual archaeological evidence that he was a real person. On March 17th, 1967, a Dutch expedition exploring a site called Teldir Allah, which is in modern-day Jordan, would have been ancient Moab, they discover uh, plaster, which used to be on the walls or maybe on some kind of an obelisk that was standing up. And uh, this plaster, once they put it all back together, like a giant jigsaw puzzle, would become known as the Dir Allah inscription. And it records visions of a guy called Balaam, son of Beor, a seer of the gods. They seem to have thought of this person as a real historical character. I think it would have been a mistake for us to think of Balaam as some Gentile who was loyal to God, like Daniel or Samuel were loyal to God. They're prophets in that sense. This is a man who's closer to uh, an occult practicer. He speaks to and for the spirits, for money and for power. Now, if you're reaching into the supernatural world, you're going to talk to all sorts of persons and peoples, and some of them are nice and some of them are not. But in his dealings with the occult, he seems to have discovered that uh, the God of Israel was a very real God, that there were beings out there who were loyal to the Lord, and there were ones who, who weren't. And so Balaam knows who the God of Israel is. And he's going to try to contact God. And so the Bible uses the word prophet here to describe him, but all the actions of Balaam point to someone who is not a friend of God, not someone yeah, who is I'm loyal to him. getting kind of witch of Endor vibes here. That's exactly it's what a... he is. He, it, it just uses that word prophet, and to us that just means a good guy. But you could be a prophet for Baal, like in the Elijah story, uh, and uh, it wasn't, he wasn't saying that the God of Israel wasn't real. He just wasn't loyal to him. That wasn't his God. He was part of the nations. And his gods were the gods of the Amorites. The, uh, the inscription talks about Balaam and, and associates him with, uh, with several of the pagan gods of the area, none of whom are good guys. And so when we read this story, I think it's a mistake to think of him as just a really nice guy out there like Melchizedek was. This is an enemy. This is someone who has uh, the ability to speak to the spirits, but not somebody who is trustworthy uh, really at all. 
Well, I don't really mistake him for a, for a good guy because he's basically a hired gun. And so I'm not sure that that's going to be something that's going to come up. I also have a, um, I have a question, but I don't really want a rabbit trail. Most people have probably already read this story. Do you feel like Balaam changes throughout the story, though? You say he's not a friend of God, that he is kind of speaks to all spirits and gods and he's for hire. But do you feel like throughout the story, maybe he, his character changes a little and he comes to to more of a belief in the true God? Uh, no. Okay. No, I don't. And it, it, it may seem that way at times, but then there are elements of the Balaam story that we're going to hit in our next episode. This is going to be a two-parter uh, that are going mm-hmm. to make it very clear that Balaam is not a friend of the Lord or of Israel. And even though he has this uh, series of visions uh, that famously are uh, positive, that are blessings on Israel, his heart is opposed. He's an enemy of the Lord and what the Lord is doing. I, I, I hear you. I just feel like maybe a lesson here, and this is just me speaking. This is not John Dillon. This is one of those times where he could have come up to the line and his heart wasn't changed across it. You know, like he's had opportunity. He's spoke to the, you know, he knows the Lord, but he turns away and he just apparently goes back to his wicked ways. Yeah. So in our last podcast, we talked about Korah and the sons of Korah and they rebel against God and they're judged, but the people of Korah, they repent and they join with the Lord and the Lord welcomes them back and they become a vital part of Israel's history. Yes. Balaam is kind of their opposite. He is a rebel. He kind of does what God wants him to do, but in the end, he returns to his own uh, vicious nature and never comes to a point where he is uh, loyal to the Lord at all. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like this was just his job and how he got by to make money. Well, that's exactly what he did. He cast spells for people. He was a weapon. Uh, I have spells. I'm willing to come. He's a mercenary. And this is what he does. This he he was famous enough for the Amorites of Moab. I was going to say, had to, to be have heard of him because he was far away from where this battle was going to take. Yeah, place. so there were stories about him, and uh, and we don't really know a whole lot about his personality. It was really hard for me, honestly, to dig up a lot of information about Balaam. Partially, I think that's because he's not taken very seriously. And for me, I have a problem with that because his story is chapters, plural, long Mm -hmm. in this story. And there are things that we would like lots of information about, and they just kind of get little sentences. And so if the authors of the Torah thought it was important enough to talk about chapter after chapter, it's important enough for us to stop and to think about it, even if it is weird. Or maybe because it is weird, we ought to spend a little bit of time looking at it. So let's go ahead and jump then into the book of Numbers, chapter 22, and uh, and we'll get into the story. Now, these are a little bit more lengthy than some of the uh, passages that we read, but honestly, because it covers chapters, it's going to take a little bit of time. But I want to read this with you. If you want to go ahead and pause the podcast and read uh, verses 1 through 6 and do a little bit of thinking, then rejoin us. But Rose, go ahead and read verses 1 through 6. Okay, Numbers 22, 1 through 6. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. 
And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pathor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse these people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I should be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the Moabites are worried. They're, they're very afraid. The Israelites have demonstrated they are not the same people that wandered up here 40 years ago. This is a military force. This is a people who have got it together. They are organized, and they are looking for a home. And Og and Sihon, the great Amorite kings of the Transjordan, are obliterated, and they're coming. And Moab is afraid. Now, these guys, the Midianites, maybe you remember the Midianites from uh, the Joseph story? Remember they, were, he, they sold their brother to the Midianites, oh, so yeah, they're slavers? Sure. Uh, but also um, Zipporah, Moses' wife, ha- is, is a Midianite. This is a really broad uh, group of people who are dwelling in the deserts. The Moabites are up in the mountains of modern-day Jordan, and they're sending off to Balaam, and they say, listen, you're a guy who really knows what he's about. If you curse people, they're cursed. If you bless people, they're blessed. And we are willing to pay you a ridiculous amount of money if you will come down here and curse our enemies for us. And so Balaam seems to know who the God of Israel is, but he doesn't seem to be exclusively loyal to him. The Moabites are well aware of who the Israelites are. They know. They came out of Egypt. We've been watching these guys for a long time. Hey, real quick question. Yeah, go so, ahead. So um, at this point of time, was this past Jericho, right? No, this is before okay, Jericho. So this is before Jericho. They haven't crossed the river yet. But for the for them, what they have heard of the Israelites is just a lot of strange happenings. So they really need this guy. Yeah, they're they recognize I can't beat these people. I'm gonna need supernatural help. And so they call in the big gun, Balaam the prophet. Does that make sense? Yeah, oh yeah, that definitely makes sense. And it sounds like he was a very big gun because he was only one guy. So let's <laughs> jump down into verse 7. Go ahead, Rose, take it away. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam, and God came to Balaam and said... Okay, we're going to pause there. All right. So they travel up there with a ridiculous amount of money to pay for divinations. They want him to contact the dead. They want him to speak to the supernatural world. Can you get us help from the other side? And Balaam doesn't say, absolutely not. I'm a loyal son of the Lord. Israel is God's chosen people. And by the way, we're not supposed to be dealing with things like that. Balaam says, yeah, I'm interested. Why don't you guys stay the night and let me, uh, let me look into this for you. Let, let me see what I can find on the other side. And I don't know who he was trying to contact, but the Lord speaks to Balaam. And God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? 
And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. Uh, that sounds great. Mm-hmm. Balaam says, oh, these guys, oh, they're, they're just trying to hire me. You know, I haven't committed mm-hmm. to anything. I, I, I didn't expect maybe you to pop up here and talk to me about this. Uh, but here you are, and so no, they're they're not with me. They're someone else, and so he's. <laughs> they're pres- definitely not lodging here with me tonight. Yeah, no, no, they're they're just here. This is a business proposition, and the Lord makes very clear to Balaam, you are not to go, you are not to curse this people. These people are blessed. These are mine, and so Balaam, because he's not an idiot, realizes, oh, if God. <laughs> This God bothered to come and talk to me. I don't think I should go with you because bad things could happen to me if I'm if I'm going to rebel against a God who's taken a personal interest in what I'm up to. And so he sends these guys back and he says, I can't curse them because their God is with them. The Lord is with them. And it, it sounds when he's talking as though he is a loyal follower of the Lord But that's exactly what he should sound like since the God of the Israelites just showed up to talk to him. This is a scared man sending away money. So do you suppose, and I know this is just supposing, with all of his contact, apparent success with contacting, you know, the dead and spirits and stuff, this is his first encounter with the Lord God? Yes, I had the same question. Yeah, we don't know. It Mm -hmm. seems to be that he knows who the Lord is, but we don't get any indication from the text that he then has stopped serving other gods. He seems to be, uh, you know, whoever's for me, I'm for them. Interesting. So they send word back to the king, and it's never fun for a king to hear no. Uh, you know, we just sent you way up there. This was our big hope, uh, and he, he turned us down. He, he wasn't interested in the job. Uh, and so the passage will pick up again in verse 15. Once again, Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor. And whatever you say to me, I will do. Come, curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So you too, please stay here tonight that I might know more what the Lord will say to me. That's interesting. Yes. Because he's talking out of both sides of his mouth mm-hmm. here. He says, oh, you've come back with more important people. This is a way of showing honor to Balaam. And with the promise more or less of a blank check. Tell me what it will take and we will give it to you. And he's interested. He says, listen, the Lord God, their God showed up to me and he said, don't go. And even if you were to give me a house full of silver, I wouldn't do anything that the Lord, my God, has told me not to do. But just stay here. Stay here. Mm -hmm. Let me check. Let me see if it's okay. Maybe things have changed. Maybe uh, the God isn't paying attention. Maybe the Lord isn't aware of what's going on. Or maybe he's changed his mind. Because after all, the Israelites aren't exactly as loyal to the Lord as the Lord is mm-hmm. to them. Let me check back and I'll see if there's anything that I can do. Pick it up in verse 20. 
And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. Now, that may sound like uh, permission granted. What it actually sounds like to me, and when you read this whole text, is God says to Balaam, do what you want. If you want to go with them, rise and go. It's not God saying, this is my will. This is him saying, listen, I've already told you what the Israelites are, who they are. You know who I am. If men have called you to come, arise and go with them, but only do what I tell you. And then in verse 22, it says, the Lord's anger is kindled because he went. This doesn't make sense if the Lord was telling Balaam to go. It makes sense, though, if you follow the context. This is a man who's looking for a reason to do what he wants to do anyway. He's trying to get permission or at least some flexibility here. Let's jump into verse 22. But God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. That is terrifying Mm -hmm. to me. The angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord. I think this is the pre-incarnate Christ. When you meet the angel of the Lord, he does weird things, like accept worship, call himself uh, Yahweh at times. There's some very strange things. This is the Lord in angelic form, and he stands to stop Balaam. Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. Now, hang on a second. Riding on a donkey. This is the part we're familiar with, right? So can you think of any other characters in the Bible that were famous for riding donkeys? Jesus? Jesus comes to mind. (laughs) He's traveling in style. When I think of Mary going to Bethlehem, I always picture it on donkey back. Partially that's because our church does a live nativity, and we have a donkey uh, that Mary rides around on. And so since therefore, it's, yeah, it's still our nativity, it must a, be biblical. B, right. Yeah. Uh, but also, this is, some, this is how people of high class were moving around. He's not riding a horse. It's not an act of war. He's got two servants with him. This isn't just a nobody. This is a real somebody. He's traveling in class and in style, and he's riding his donkey, and then things get weird. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. I bet he did. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Okay, so let's stop. I hope you notice that this episode happens in three parts. The number three is going to be very important to the story of Balaam. And the wise person here, the person who really can see into the supernatural world, is not Balaam. It's a donkey. Hmm. This is supposed to make you laugh. You're supposed to think to yourself, but I thought Balaam was the big guy. I thought Balaam was the super wizard. He was the one, whoever you bless is blessed, and whoever you curse is cursed. But he has no idea 
that the most powerful being in the angelic world, other than you know the the Lord incarnate, is is right there in front of him. Balaam is blind to what's really happening in front of him. The wise person is the donkey, and the idiot is the wizard. <laughs> Such a strange, strange happening. Yeah, it makes me wonder if animals are more sensitive to spiritual things. So in uh, in Akkadian literature, in Babylonian literature, any th- there's there are many places where you'll find talking animals. This this is part of their worldview. This is something that they would have understood. But you never find animals talking just in regular life. It's it's not Narnia like that where uh, Mister Tumnus is there and the beavers are leaving. Uh, the the children off to find uh, Aslan. Uh, this is instead something different. This is saying when you encounter talking animals, you're in the presence of supernatural powers. This seems to be God using the language that Balaam's culture was very familiar with to try to get the attention of this man. And he ought to realize he's being made a fool of here. The donkey sees the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. This ought to remind us later on of the book of Joshua, where the angel of the Lord appears there. It also makes me think of the Garden of Eden story, where a cherub is placed at the gate of Eden, Mm, and there's a whirling Mm -hmm. sword that protects the way. Suddenly, Balaam has placed himself as an enemy of the Lord, and the donkey is the wise person, The wizard is the idiot, and the donkey is doing its level best to not get killed because this guy has no idea what he's doing. He's decided what's right and what's wrong, and the path that he's pursuing leads to death. So there's the same phrase is used in verse 22 and verse 27. Uh, Anger was kindled. God's Mm. anger was kindled, and then Balaam's anger was kindled. Is that just a common expression, or is there a connection there? You're supposed to ask yourself, which of these guys has the right to be angry? Mm. Anger happens. It's part of life. We can be angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. It, it isn't saying, well, Jesus didn't flip the tables in the temple because he was in a good mood. There is mm-hmm. a place here for anger. The question is, is he wise? And the answer is no. Donkeys are famous for being dumb, being stubborn, and the donkey is the hero here, and the wizard is being made fun of, even in the text itself. And so, yeah, there, there's very much an idea here that the fire of anger is kindled in the hearts of these men. And so the reason here, the donkey sees the angel of the Lord, and it takes off into the field. So you can imagine Balaam trying to get his donkey back onto the road, and everyone's maybe giggling. You know, this guy is supposed to be a somebody, and he can't even direct his donkey down the street. He's ended up in the farm field down there. Later on, he's, he's being shoved up against the wall. Everyone's beginning to wonder, is this the guy we really want mm-hmm. to come and defend us from the Israelites? He seems like an idiot. He even hits the point where the donkey just straight up gives up and lays down. And did you notice what Balaam did? Struck the donkey with his staff. So Balaam strikes his foot against the wall. Can you think of any places in the Bible that talk about injured feet? Yeah, in Genesis. In Genesis, Mm -hmm. it describes that when the Messiah comes, he will bruise the serpent's head 
And Satan or the serpent will bruise the Messiah's heel. There's an injury here that takes place to his foot that takes place. This is something, and, and Balaam is going to have a lot of Messiah-like things to say shortly, but there's a very real instance here. This guy is no deliverer. This is not someone who is injured in a tragic uh, battle for righteousness. This is a guy who can't drive his donkey straight down the road. This is no Dr. Ransom. <laughs> no, this this guy, is he's not got it together. And, and so, yeah, his, his foot is shoved up against the wall, and he begins to beat the animal. And then it jumps down to verse 27. It says, when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Hmm. Staffs connect to trees. They just do. Moses's staff is in a super important thing. You can go back and check out our episodes that talk about Moses and Abraham and all these guys, and staffs are symbols of power. They're symbols of office. And what does Balaam use his for? To strike the donkey. He can't even make the donkey get up and go the direction it's supposed to go. What hope does he have of splitting the Red Sea or of delivering the people against the Amalekite? There's zero. This is not the guy. And everyone's beginning to question this. And so this is the Bible subtly showing you that Balaam is not what he appears to be. He's honored by the pagan world but he is not a match for Jesus or for the Lord and what the Lord is doing. And so just to make matters worse and to make it super obvious, verse 28. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand for then I would kill you. Did you notice that Balaam doesn't seem to stop and be like, why is this donkey talking yes. to me? Yes, yes. because uh, if I was riding on a donkey and it happened to me, the first thing I'm going to do is just step back and say, wait, donkeys don't talk. Like, can you say that again, please? This is weird, and it doesn't say that anyone else hears this. Balaam hears this. And so you can imagine, here you are, you're looking at this guy. He's coming to deliver your people. He can't drive the donkey straight, and all of a sudden he's beating the donkey and he's yelling at it, and he's having a conversation with a donkey. And the donkey begins to say, hey, look at my nature. Look at what I have done. Am I a friend to you or not? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And Balaam says no. So then the question then becomes, okay, that's true of the donkey. But what about Balaam? Is Balaam loyal to the Lord? Is it his habit to obey what the Lord is doing? This is a moment where you're supposed to say, man, even the donkey is a better servant than Balaam is. What do you think, Cairo? Is this making sense? Oh, yeah, it definitely makes sense. But I can, I can understand why he would get mad at the donkey, especially if he didn't see anything. I would get mad. But yeah, so it reminds me also of another time with the Apostle Paul. He's traveling on the Damascus Road, and he sees the risen Christ in the road. And what does he say to him? It's hard for you to kick against the Again, it's that foot injury going on, and no one else hears the, the conversation that's taking place. This motif happens a couple times in Scripture, but the point of this, uh, Cairo, is not for you to go home and look at the donkey and be like, are you really smarter than I think you are? 
Are you secretly not talking to Every me? Every time the donkey's stubborn and doesn't want to go anywhere, that might just be an angel standing yeah, there. Yeah, this, this, that's, that's to miss the point of the whole story. Right. The whole point of the story is to point out that Balaam is not what he pretends to be. He doesn't have it all together. He can't tell wisdom from foolishness. He can't see down the road. He's standing at the base of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he's choosing to define right and wrong for himself. He says, you've made me look like a fool because that's what he is. Right. And that's what he gets angry about. Now, does hitting the donkey three times with his staff have anything to do? Yeah, you're just going to keep noticing three keeps popping up over and over again in this story. Uh, and keep, keep, keep that on the back burner. Uh, so let's jump down into verse 31. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you, because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is an evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. The donkey delivers Balaam. Balaam can deliver no one. The Lord is against him. The Lord is against the Moabites, the Midianites, the enemies of the Lord, because they have chosen to stand against him. This isn't saying that God doesn't love Balaam. This isn't God saying that God doesn't love the Midianites or the Moabites. As a matter of fact, later on, Ruth, who is a Moabite, is going to become really important to the story. This isn't God casting away ethnic groups. This is God saying, you are against me. You're fighting me. Don't be shocked when I fight against you. And what hope do you have of deliverance from my hand? Even Balaam, who seems to be the gold standard of supernatural powerful men in the world, is incapable of recognizing the danger that's at hand. And so he falls down on his face and he says, oh, if I had any idea that you weren't in favor of this, I would not have gone. <laughs> Except for didn't the Lord show up and tell him, hey, don't go. I don't want you to do this. Don't go curse them. And he keeps coming back and saying, yeah, but what about now? Yeah, but what about now? Yeah, but what about now? And it's this ongoing, perpetual nagging, trying to get his own will instead of the will of God. Well, he's got some pretty hefty motives. He's got a lot of silver and gold being dangled in front of him. He has access to the spiritual world, and he has a lot of, um, what's it called? Not street cred, but people know about him, a lot of fame or something. People know him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Numbers 23, verses 8 through 9, actually kind of kicks off this, this story. So he goes down with them, but by this point, it's been made real clear to Balaam. He is up to his neck in supernatural powers. Something is going on here, and he does not have the power that he may wish that he had. And so he gets there, and he's on a tight leash. He knows that there is a sword to his neck, more or less. And so when he arrives, he tells the king, listen, I came 
but I can't do what you want me to do. I'll try, but I'm not going to be able to be what you think I'm going to be. And so he gives oracles or um, supernatural sayings. He's filled with a message that he speaks. And the Lord seems to force Balaam not to curse, but to bless Israel. And each of these three blessings is really interesting. Let's take a look at the first one in Numbers 23, uh, verses 8 through 9. Kyrell, will you pick that one up? Sure. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. This is an interesting line. What does it mean that Israel is not counted among the nations? I mean, I feel like it's a reference back to the dividing of the nations. That's exactly what it is. Mm. If we take this thought pattern, this phrase is going to come up by another prophet, not Balaam, but Moses. In Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 through 9, Cairo, take that one away. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So the other nations are enslaved to the watchers, to the supernatural powers, the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece. But there is one people whom the Lord has kept out of all of that. They are a holy people to him. They do not belong among the goyim, among the nations. They are sacred, set apart for him. And so here we get a little bit of Deuteronomy 32, straight from the mouth, not of Moses, but Balaam. That's really beautiful because we've referenced Deuteronomy 32 on this podcast many, many times. And this is kind of a neat little gem to find further along. Yeah, it's, it's part of the worldview of these ancient people. It's not just a random line saying, you know, they just don't like anybody else or they don't think of themselves like anyone else. As a matter of fact, Israel can't seem to help themselves from doing that. Like every other page in the Exodus story, they keep saying, why don't we go back to Egypt? Mm -hmm. Things were so much better in Egypt. Moses, you brought us out here to kill us. Things are better for everyone else. Later on, when you get into Samuel, all the leaders of Israel say, why don't we have a king like the other nations? This isn't saying that the Israelites don't like the other nations. This is a divine endorsement of who they are. They are a special people, not under the authority of the supernatural powers that Balaam is used to dealing with. This is something different entirely. And so you would think that that would be the end of it. He gets up there, the king is upset. You blessed him, you didn't curse him. But Balak, the king of the Moabites, has a plan. What if we can maneuver in such a way that God is overpowered and you can curse the people? What if we can put you in a place where the power of God isn't strong enough to compel you to do what God is ordering you to do? And so they begin to move from high place to high place. And I can story. see how he thought that because in those times, their gods were territorial. That's right. They weren't everywhere. They were only 
in this one place or another place. That's right. So take a look at Numbers 23, uh, verse 13. And Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall only see a fraction of them and shall not see them all. Then curse them for me from there. That's what they're doing. They're moving around. Maybe from this angle, you'll be able to cast the curse. This reminds me of a verse, and I think it's in Isaiah, and you'll probably know what it is, where it says, have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from, to you from the beginning? And then it says, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. Yeah, It just feels the same. Like, don't they know there isn't anywhere you can go where his power is going to be diminished? Like, this is just, and speaking of, like, he looks down and sees them as grasshoppers, and that's how they compared themselves to the giants. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. just a lot... People seem to really miss this. Uh, Jonah, for instance, misses this, right? God wants me to do this. I'll take off to Tarshish. Right. He won't Uh, ever find me there. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll get away. God won't have the power over there if I can just get out of his territory. The Lord is the Lord of the four corners of the earth, of the ends of the earth, north, south, east, and west. He dominates. He takes the wilderness. He takes these places, and he redeems them. He brings water to places where there is no water, and food to places where there is no food. And so they get up to this second high place. And in verse 23 and 24 of uh, Numbers 23, the conversation continues. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what has God wrought? Behold a people, as a lioness it rises up, and as a lion it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. So this is a much longer uh, passage. We're only kind of hitting some of the highlights here. But what he says is, listen, you brought me here to cast a spell. There is no spell that will work. There is no enchantment. There is no divination. There is no God, no spirit that is capable of matching what Israel is doing here. And he describes Israel in terms that uh, Jacob would have liked. This is kind of when uh, Jacob gives a blessing to his sons. He describes Judah like a lion. He says, listen, Israel is like a creature of the wilderness, not in a bad way, but in a good way. This is an animal that is powerful. It's something that's coming and is going to bring about judgment upon the people's and so Balak hears this, and he doesn't like it, but he's not done. If I was Balak, I don't think I would like it either. I just paid a lot of money and waited <laughs> many days for him to travel down there. Right. And then he gets here, blesses the people. We move to another place, and he says, eh, we're at another place, but there still is nothing that I can do for you here. So he's going to take them to oh, a really powerful place in Ammonite mythology, to a place called Peor. And we've talked about Peor before. Uh, Baal of Peor is an aspect of the god Baal. It's the underworld aspect of the god Baal. Uh, They would uh, dig holes and graves in the ground to pour blood to feed the god in the underworld. Uh, This is a place of darkness, a place of witchcraft, a place of wizardry, It is a super bad place, and it's connected to the god Baal in his underworld form. Uh, But take a look at verse 27 of uh, chapter 23. 
I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the desert. This isn't an accident. This is a special place. And it's going to come up a lot in our second episode about this. And so they get there. This is home turf for Baal worship in the area. This is kind of like their Mount Olympus for these guys there. And this one has major Messiah elements to it. Uh, But let's jump into verses 5 through uh, 7. Kyrell, will you read that for me? How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters, water shall flow from his buckets. And seed shall be in many waters. Suddenly... Israel is the Garden of Eden. They are a forest in the desert. They are a well where there is no water. They are like aloe plants that the Lord has planted by the streams. This is gorgeous. This is filled with Eden imagery. This is filled with the idea that Israel is more than meets the eye. This is talking about physical Israel, like Mm -hmm. the people. The people of Israel. Yes, that's beautiful. And what's going to be happening through them. Now, does Israel have any idea that any of this is happening? The answer is no. They're probably just doodling around doing their thing. They're just out there living life, complaining and wishing they were back in Egypt where things were better. Like they constantly are rebelling against God being unfaithful to God, and the whole time that they are being faithless, God is being faithful. Isn't this a little bit how we are? There's so, I mean, they're, like I said, doing their day-to-day thing, and there's so much spiritual warfare going on right above them, and they don't even know it. They have no idea. They have no idea. That's exactly what this is. And if ever there was a character who was made to talk about spiritual warfare, it's Balaam. That's who and what he is. He is a creature of the spiritual world, uh, an in-between kind of person, and he is forced to obey. Israel should be a blessing. That's what God called Abraham to do, to go and to be a blessing among the Gentiles. Whoever blesses you, I will bless, and whoever curses you, I will curse. It's it's the same wording, the same imagery that's used in the Abrahamic covenant. Mm -hmm. This is on purpose. And so this leaves us with a very grouchy king of Moab, uh, a very um, pompous uh, Balaam. Uh, You can't help but imagine he's very proud of himself here. Uh, He's having incredible success talking to the supernatural world. It just isn't doing what he wants it to do. And here he makes no effort. He's trying really hard to identify himself with the God of, of, of Israel, but he's not going to be loyal to him. And we're going to get into that. And so this launches us into a final oracle, a fourth one, that isn't about blessing Israel. He says, do you want to know what's going to happen in the future? Kyrell, will you read uh, the next passage here? Numbers 24, verses 14 through 16. All right. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days, Balaam's final oracle. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eyes open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High. Now, hang on a second. Doesn't that sound like a man who's a bit full of himself? 
Well, he sees the vision of the Almighty. I am the man whose mm-hmm. eyes are opened, except I couldn't spot the angel oh. of the Lord with a flaming <laughs> sword of judgment in the road. But my donkey could. I am the man who hears the words of God, except I have no intention of obeying them. I'm going to do what I want and hope this goes well. I am the one who hears the words. I know the knowledge of the Most High. That word knowledge is the word da'at. It's the same word that's used to describe a certain tree in the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What was it that the serpent said to Eve? When you, you, I'm yeah, sorry, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. Knowing good and evil. You, when you eat this, your eyes will be opened. This is the word that's used. It's the same word that's used when Adam and Eve eat from the tree, and instead of knowing the things of God, they know that they are naked. It's the same word that Lot uses when he tries to give his daughters to the rapists Mm -hmm. in Sodom. And he says, I have two daughters who have not known a man at all. This is a word that is hyperlinked back to some real serious stories of the Old Testament. And it comes into play in this way. Does Balaam really know? Is this a wise man or is this a fool? Is this a man who is following God or is this a man trying to use God to get his own way? It ends in a pretty abrupt way. Look at verse 25 in chapter 24, Rose. Then Balaam rose and went back to his place and Balak also went his way. But Balaam isn't done with Balak or Israel. He may seem to have gone home, but he for sure didn't stay there. He seems to be a loyal follower of the Lord, but his true nature is about to be revealed. And we don't have time to get into it today, but let's plan together one more time to talk about Balaam next week.